Good morning, everybody, and aloha from Hawaii. My name is Jürgen Steinmetz with Rebuilding.Travel. And um, this morning, we have participants from most continents in the world uh, ready to listen to Guy Dietrich. He's the vice president um, for uh, development at Cisco Systems, I believe. And my partner, uh, Dr. Peter Tarlow, will introduce him um, and give us a little bit of um, his background and what we're doing today. How, some housekeeping information for those that haven't attended this. Uh, this is an interactive session. So anytime you have questions or any relevant comments, you can simply uh, raise your hand. You can sh click share on screen or chat and then you can raise your hand. And uh, we see this and we'll give you the microphone. There's also a chat feature. So everyone will see these chats. Sometimes uh, for Peter and myself, it's very difficult to get into the chats and actually respond because we're busy letting people in and out and um, uh, trying to do the rest on this technical platform. So it's always better if you really want to be heard to raise your hand and just talk to us. And once you raise your hand, you can unmute your microphone. And when you're done, please mute yourself again so we don't get a background noise. At the end of this event, it will be archived on rebuilding.travel. Now we will also convert it into a podcast. So you can see um, a podcast um, version as well. It's going to be on livestream.travel. Of course, we'll report about it and also link to the video from eTurbo News. We're now live on YouTube um, as we speak. And uh, we will um, later on add the other social media recording on Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and so forth. So it, it'll be all over the place and it'll be an interesting session. Thanks for participating. And Peter in Texas, the floor is yours. All right. And I think I'm unmuted now. Um, so uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you happen to be in the world. I think you'll all find this to be an extremely interesting session. Tourism on the whole has been face-to-face -face or people on the ground. But this last year has taught us the true importance of the electronic world, the cyber world, learning to deal with ways that we have never really, we considered, but we never really put the emphasis on that we needed to. So today we're going to move truly into a virtual world. We have a true expert. Um, he's a good friend of mine. His name is Guy Dietrich. He is a true academic. His PhD is from Swansea University in the United Kingdom, uh, though he uh, lives in Texas. Uh, we have worked together on numerous uh, projects, including the attempt to establish a peace university in Northern Israel, um, many, many issues. A uh, guy um, has moved on from the academic world into the world of doers. And as such, he is now one of the really the leading experts in the whole issue of cyber and how this will impact not only our world, but of course, specifically our tourism world. So I'm gonna ask Guy if he'll start by giving us a little bit of background on what he does, some of the projects they're doing. You may notice that the background of his, uh, when he's speaking, is both in English and Chinese. And I think that's important because it kind of symbolizes the fact that this today world, it doesn't matter if you're in Texas, Tanzania, uh, Portugal, or China, we're sort of all connected by the world of cyber and the world of virtual realities. And so uh, Guy, I'm gonna hand the 
conversation over to you. I will interrupt along the way so that people, you know, to be clear and, and get ideas. I think Guy's going to first talk to us about the whole importance of what he's doing and then relate it specifically to the tourism industry. Hopefully, lots of people have lots of questions to ask too. So, Guy, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you very much, Peter. And it's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, I don't know that if there has been a, an industry more impacted by COVID uh, than your industry, than tourism, uh, perhaps healthcare, perhaps education, but it, it's a, a complete change of orientation. Um, it, it, it literally was a cliff uh, that you all experienced. And um, what I'm here to talk about today is I'll give a bit of background into the program that I run at Cisco as the Global Innovation Officer. And then I'm also going to um, talk specifically about some projects that we're doing in tourism with various countries around the world, um, particularly those that rely so heavily on tourism, like Mexico, where you know 15% of their GDP is linked to the tourism industry. Italy, it's 13%, Spain, it's 14%. I mean, these economies are taking a major hit because people can't travel. Um, so let me describe the program very quickly that I run globally. It's called Country Digital Acceleration. And um, about five years ago, uh, we started recognizing in meetings with presidents and prime ministers around the world we started recognizing that they were introducing these national digital agendas. And typically these things were developed with McKinsey or Deloitte, EY, uh, one of the big consulting firms. And they spent a couple of years putting them together. Um, they would announce these national digital agendas to much fanfare, and then they would stall. And they would stall because there was no execution plan uh, behind them. And so Cisco stepped in and said, listen, we, we, we're gonna put together a process whereby we can evaluate these national digital agendas. We can extract the value from them. We will take these individual pillars that you know are going to have an impact on your economy. We'll put them into individual projects, execution plans and build budgets around them so that those countries can start executing. Um, we have at Cisco 60,000 partner companies around the world uh, that we work with in 130 different countries. And so we were able to pull together this group that could uh, really rally around these countries and help them uh, get to the value of digitization faster. Today, um, the program is in uh, 37 countries. Uh, our most recent one that was accepted into the program was about a month ago and that's Thailand. Uh, but it's not all just the big boys. It's not just UK, US, Italy, Germany, India. We also have Azerbaijan and we have Kazakhstan, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Qatar. Um, you know, it, it's, as many small developing and small developed countries as there are large developing and large developed countries. And what we do is we invest in pilot projects um, without any promise of return. We invest in pilot projects or proofs of concept 
uh, that allow the countries to see what's going to work and what's not going to work in some cases before they do a scale up or they do a replication. So that can uh, be true for education, which of course is a massive, massive issue right now uh, with so many children unable to go back to school, yet they still need access uh, to education. One of the things that we find, and it's linked to tourism as well, is this digital divide that exists with underserved populations, rural regions of countries where even if kids uh, wanted to go to school and could go to school, they don't have Wi-Fi uh, in their regions. And so they need to be connected. Um, healthcare, obviously that's been turned on its ear. Um, you know, we, we no longer um, are just uh, satisfied going into the doctor clinic uh, or a hospital. The first line of, of care now is very much virtual medicine, telemedicine. There are multiple other areas, but we're here to talk specifically about what we're doing in tourism. And so many, as Peter knows, uh, so many of our countries rely so heavily on tourism. Um, I, I look at a, a country like uh, the Cayman, uh, Cayman Islands, uh, you know, where so much of their, their economy uh, depends on tourism and it got cut off completely. And we're working with them and others to answer some questions, some fundamental questions like, um, uh, how do you give people the confidence to get back on an airplane, fly to your destination, take a taxi to a hotel, stay in that hotel, go out and eat at the restaurants, go and enjoy the beach or be poolside, uh, and then obviously making their way back home. But all of that whole tourist experience has been completely halted. And so what we're looking at now are, are answering those fundamental questions. Um, what does it look like to have testing coming into a country? Do you do it at the airport before they leave? Is that now a requirement? Um, is, there a, um, uh, is there going to be a period where they have to be in quarantine uh, in your country before they can become a tourist? Um, how do you build the trust in that country and in that um, uh, this COVID slash post-COVID world to bring them back? So just a few examples of, of what we're doing in the interim. Um, in the UAE, you know, if, if you've been to Dubai in particular, you know that they have these big, beautiful hotels and they're very, very uh, uh, reliant on tourism uh, for their economy because they're not one of those oil and gas giants in the region. Um, and so we, we had to come up with ways that would allow for people to get a comfort factor back again because we know for sure that the more people that get on airplanes and fly safely to destinations, the more confidence that they will have in air travel the more time that they can spend uh, in hotels and, and feel safe and see the protocols in place, the more comfortable that they're going to be going to other hotels in other parts of the world. And so 
uh, as an introduction, uh, we created a digital ballroom at one of the hotels that was is a mix of uh, in-person attendees to events together with virtual attendees that aren't quite ready to join an event in person yet because of social distancing or whatever, you know, their, their own compromised health conditions, those sorts of things. And what they get to see are people acting appropriately in an enclosed environment associated with an event and they get to see all of the protocols and policies and procedures that they, the, um, the hotel has put in place uh, to make sure that people do stay safe. And that gives them an initial comfort. So maybe the next time around, they can join in uh, in person and feel comfortable and travel. Um, th there's um, a whole museum culture that was put um, to the side and told you can't visit museums, we're shutting them down. And um, so what we did was we worked with, in the case of the UK uh, and the Museum of Natural History, the very famous Museum of Natural History in the UK, um, to create a digital experience so that people could have that experience again, stay connected with the hotel or with the, uh, with the museum. Uh, and then when they were comfortable, actually venture in to that museum. So we're taking the entire archives of, of the Museum of Natural History and several other museums in London uh, to provide a virtual experience in the interim and all the while create that comfort and that trust in what that museum is doing to protect people that actually will eventually come back and attend. Um, another quick example uh, is, is you know, we're doing two major sporting events, both of which were, were put on hold. Uh, one is the Olympics in Tokyo, and two is uh, the World Cup in Doha. Um, with regard to the Olympics, everything has changed, right? Um, they moved it from 20 to 21. Uh, they need to be able to give people confidence, huge numbers of people, confidence that coming to Tokyo is going to be a safe experience. And so they need to be able to manage and monitor uh, the people before they arrive, during their travel, when they get there. Uh, they need to be able to manage crowds. They need to be able to uh, promote social distancing both in the stadiums and around the towns, in the restaurants and the bars and the like. And so you're talking about a massive effort uh, of data gathering and uh, uh, human management. Similarly, with the World Cup um, in Doha, the projects that we've taken on there um, uh, actually can be distilled down to a single card. And that card is effectively your identification as a World Cup tourist. It will be able to uh, um, get you uh, all of your flight information, get you on your plane. Uh, when you land in the country, your hotel is alerted that you've landed and they get your room ready for you to the highest uh, specifications of hygiene. And, and sanitation. Um, you are picked up by a car. 
that again has already been validated as as being uh, safe to get into. Um, and then you travel to your hotel and your card becomes your entry to everything uh, and your ability to purchase things, uh, to get to your seat, to order food when you're in your seat. And then everything that I just described all the way back and to your, uh, to your home. It's not just important during COVID times, it's also important for a new wholly connected experience. Similarly, uh, we are the lead uh, sponsor and uh, IT provider for the Expo in Dubai, another major event with as many as 25 million people attending over its, over its term. Um, we are going to create the most connected tourist experience that has ever existed. Now, what does that mean? It means all the things I just described, plus it means that when you are actually in the event itself, you can reserve rooms uh, to go meet with colleagues. You can reserve spaces at certain events. You are guided from one place to the other um, by a map that is interactively generated for you specifically on your journey throughout that expo. Um, the, uh, the world has fundamentally changed. We're never going back. I, I, I just speak personally for a moment. Um, I used to travel um, uh, 40 weeks a year and over three quarters of a million miles a year. I would visit um, between 25 and 35 different countries around the world. That was, I, I was a, uh, a hotel's uh, dream customer uh, because I, I stuck to a certain group of hotels all the time. I flew the same airlines all the time. Everything in my life and the lives of, of frequent travelers has changed and it will never go back. Now, I wanna draw one distinction before I open it up for questions. I wanna draw the distinction between business travel and the joy of tourism travel. In as much as business travel will never be the same, right? We have now learned through technologies like this uh, Cisco's WebEx um, and, and other uh, uh, telepresence technologies that a lot of business can get done without getting on an airplane and be done successfully and productively. That is not necessarily the same case for tourism. I know that we're doing a lot of interim things to keep people excited about museums and excited about certain destinations, but there is no replacement for actually being there and seeing it yourself. So it's up to us to take on the challenges of creating an experience that provides the new safety, security, and health protocols that are going to be mandatory. But we also have to take on the notion of cybersecurity and, and Peter, your world, making sure that bad actors don't take advantage of what will be a tourism resurgence uh, to set it back again. 
So with that, I'll stop and I'll be happy to take some additional questions. There are dozens of other examples, Peter, but uh, but I know we, uh, uh, we're time limited here. Yeah, well, that, first of all, I want to thank you. Um, before we really let people, and I'm sure lots of people will have questions they want to ask, but just a few maybe comments. I thought one of the key words that you used was in the interim. In other words, we, we might really see this as three different levels, the pre-COVID world, the post-COVID world, whatever that will look like. And right now we're in the COVID pause world, the world between, between those two worlds. Um, and I think that's really important for people to understand that many of the things such as visitations to museums are not meant to substitute for being at the museum. They're kind of a way, a bridge until we can get back to the museums. So it's better than nothing. We all understand that. But in the end, I, I want to emphasize what you said, which is there's no substitute for actually being there. That, that's the, the personal feel. The second thing before we turn it over that I think is important to talk about is much of the stuff that you've spoken about in protecting people for COVID and especially the Dubai card for the World Cup will have other uses, tremendous uses. For example, in business travel in Latin America, we've always worried about the issue of kidnapping or the issue of safety. And I think if someone can go and know that they have a safe car, a safe hotel, that they have everything organized through the use, the magic of um, virtual cybersecurity and electronics, that's going to lower the cases of crime radically. The issues of pickpocketing, the issues and of, of um, a sequestro, uh, uh, with uh, virtual kidnappings, uh, all of those, I think you're creating tools that we, we will be able to use later on. So I, I think it's important to see this not only as dealing with COVID, which is obviously important, I don't mean to take that away, but then to use these tools to be able to go into the future and solve past problems and new problems, both of which will be touching us over the next, let's say, decade. Uh, to go. Uh, I think, did you want to comment on my comment or should we just take questions? Uh, listen, Peter, I think you're spot on because um, we, we actually internally refer to certain things as bridge solutions. Yeah. And, and effectively, we look at the outcome down the road that we want to accomplish and realize during this, um, this period uh, that, that we have to take into consideration the restrictions on our movement and other things uh, to create these bridge solutions. And, and to, to also your point, this isn't just about addressing this point in time. Um, if you think about um, infectious diseases, because uh, you, know, you and I worked on this quite a bit at Texas A&M when, when we were there together. Um, this is not new. COVID is a novel coronavirus, but it is a novel coronavirus in a series of novel coronaviruses and other uh, pandemics. Um, we will see another one. I mean, we have to remember we had uh, SARS, we had MERS, we now have what they're calling SARS-2. In between there, we had- H1N1. Flu. We had swine flu. Um, 
we can assume that this is going to happen again and again and again. And so what we can learn from this experience, I think is profound for the future, not just in terms of how we live day to day and protect ourselves and occupy this earth safely, but also in terms of how we travel and how we tour and how we enjoy and have leisure. Yeah, yeah I, I, when you were speaking, what went through my mind was the, uh, when Ronald Reagan was talking about an anti-missile missile, which many people said was impossible and crazy. Of course, we know today it works very well. But one of the offshoots of that was the GPS system. Mm -hmm. And how many of us today could function without a GPS in our car? Or, uh, and so what was considered to be science fiction, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, today is reality. And I think some of the stuff that you guys are developing, which is feels a little science fiction and not necessarily totally real, in a few years will be, yeah, things that we're we're all used to. Uh, I'm shocked that you know when you when you get lost in a computer, you ask a nine year old, and um, today because of COVID, children in hmm. first grade are now becoming good typists. And, and, and our keyboarders, we don't use the word typing anymore. And uh, kindergarten kids are doing, t are, are programming. So what is almost impossible to someone, you know, I'm at the age where my grandfather was when he was on a horse to a car. We are today um, <laughs> looking at a world in which what we understood or a typewriter to be to six year old kids programming is a completely different world. And I think that what you're doing is you're opening up those worlds. And that's really what tourism is all about, mm -hmm. is the opening up of worlds, of letting people see not only other countries, but other times. And so, um, you know, I really want to congratulate you all for keep pushing that and pushing us forward. We may not like it. We might fight with you a little bit. We might go kicking and screaming, but it's necessary. So I think that's real important. Jürgen, do we have anybody who'd like um, to? Yes, we have. A, well, we have no one raising hands, but we have a number of people asking questions. So I'm going okay. to call them, give them a chance to actually verbalize the question. If they don't want to do this, we can read it. And I, I have to add to it what reminds me when I went to school many, many years ago, we started getting the calculators. And I know that there was a debate, a national debate in Germany at the time about should we allow calculators in school? And uh, it's just kind of the same development, um, I think, these days. We're just uh, way beyond the calculators. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it is just uh, absolutely fascinating. We have um, Colleen Bidewell. Uh, um, Colleen Bidewell, you had a question. If you want to unmute yourself, um, go ahead and ask it, please. Yeah, I think you're from the British, from the UK, aren't you? I am, yeah. Hi, everyone. Hope everyone's well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Colin Bidewell. I'm a consultant, independent management consultant, also an inventor, actually, for this perspective, particular uh, conversation. Um, so I'm just kind of wondering, obviously, we see these sort of interventions being put in, uh, obviously, CLIA is still talking with um, CDC around how to mobilize ships, etc. A whole lot of other people saying, what do we need to do to build exit, um, not only exit towards um, COVID-19 and 
Black Lives Matter movement in terms of diversity and inclusion, but building better towards a more sustainable and accessible future. So I, I just I'm kind of wondering to what degree do we think that conversation is working well um, in order to sort of address what we currently got and obviously um, societal redness, I guess, uh, mm -hmm. for, for going forward for 2030 and certainly 2050 as well. So a big question, but I just wondered what the, uh, the view was around that. Uh, How well are conversations working? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, Colin, because um, it's one that we evaluate uh, on a daily basis, basically. Um, the needs are emerging so fast that technology is doing everything it can to keep up. I'll give you a quick example. Um, you know, we, we, we thought about uh, contact tracing and we talked <laughs> about um, being able to do assessment of people that are going into stadiums. Um, and what you found is that the assessment at the gate was taking too long. And so people would be stacking up uh, on top of each other in a long line waiting to get tested. And of course there's exposure risk there. So we had to figure out a way to where uh, a, a person can look into a screen and it can test for temperature to make sure that there isn't a, a, a very high temperature. Uh, it can check to make sure that the person is wearing a mask. And if those fundamental criteria are in place, then they're let in and it happens instantly. We had to learn that, we had to catch up. The conversations are happening um, at this very moment. I mean, I think of another example around um, around uh, crowd control. You know, we now have these small little cameras that we can mount um, that do a 360 degree turn and it keeps track of people, not their faces and, and, and any of that stuff. It's just the physical form. And we can dynamically see in real time when there are large crowds of people that are not social distancing and, and we can address that um, by either cutting down the number of people going into the bathroom or cutting down the number of people that are standing in line for concessions, opening up more concessions in that facility, just as again, an example. But it's all about monitoring, not the Orwellian type monitoring, but the monitoring for the safety and security of people. There's another example of Smart Hajj. Uh, that we've been working on in Saudi Arabia uh, that again is addressing that same issue of bringing in millions of people from all over the world uh, into a single location where typically they're incredibly crowded. Um, in fact, there was uh, uh, some years ago an actual uh, stampede yes. uh, that, that ended up hurting a number of people. And that's it's happened just, more than once. Yes, but that's what prompted Yes. Uh, the crowd management at that in, at that venue, at that site. But now with COVID, it takes on a whole new life and a whole new world and a whole new level of importance. So um, the conversations are happening rapidly. And I can tell you that they're happening at the highest levels of government. There is a recognition now that we have to be responsive and in very short time. Guy, you, you brought up without bringing up, but still hinted at the whole issue of the ethics behind some of this stuff. 
And while mm -hmm. I understand that everything that you're doing is meant not to be invasive, not to be used for other reasons, it's still the technologies out there. Right. How do we um, utilize these types of situations? When you were speaking, I was thinking of civil disobedience and mm -hmm. you know, how that would interact with the police. How do we utilize, or has anybody begun to think about how do we utilize these um, wonderful technologies and yet still protect the human being and the privacy? So, and not get yeah. so we do end up with an Orwellian situation. Our industry is 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 quite unique in this way, um, and our company in particular, um, Cisco itself, Cisco Systems, um, eighty percent of the world's internet traffic uh, passes through our equipment around the world. Eighty percent, um, and uh, we stop over 20 billion cyber attacks every single day. We stop six times more cyber attacks every single day than there are Google searches. And so there is a, and the way that we define privacy, which is really what you're getting at, Peter, yes. uh, is a combination of security and transparency. If those two things are there, then you can have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, I've heard the argument that you say, well, you know, the, the second that you click yes on, on any one of these sites, you have no idea what you are getting yourself into, what you're opting into. And that's where transparency comes in. You know, if you were to go onto a site and it said, uh, by clicking yes, uh, we reserve the right to gather this information regarding you and share it with anonymous third parties that we will sell your information to for a profit for the company. Are you okay with that? My guess is, is that most people will probably say, no, you know, I, I don't need to read the latest uh, bit of, of gossip uh, uh, in exchange for my own privacy and, per and sharing my personal information. But we don't do that. There's a lack of transparency. And then the second piece is security. And um, to know that there will not be bad actors coming in and taking your information without your knowledge, yeah. uh, to know that those things are held secure is equally important. That applies, Peter, to all of these technologies. And, and companies now, the ones that are most successful uh, at, at protecting people's privacy are those that have the right filter. So whatever comes in to that filter, if those values are in place, whatever comes out is going to be predictable and appropriate, which is why in, in our case at Cisco, we have very specific filters. There are certain countries where we will not sell surveillance cameras to because we know how they're going to be used yeah. and it's not consistent with our values. Meanwhile, there are others that will sell them to for stadiums, for social distancing in a heartbeat. So it's really, it's very much on a case-by-case -case basis. It's a much more complicated conversation than what we have sure. for here, yeah, uh, but course. it's a great question just the same. Yeah, we have uh, two more um, right now in line uh, without raising hands, but interesting question. One, and maybe we can give you the microphone. One is Gisau Rosala and then Wolfgang Hoffman. Uh, Gisau, 
uh, Rosala, could you, uh, I'm going to unmute you. Maybe you can ask your question. Go ahead. And let us know where you're from. Yeah, hi, everyone. It's uh, Gisu from Honolulu. <laughs> oh, good. You're in the neighborhood. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, basically, I, I think as, as much as we are in rush to find solutions, yeah, which is understandable because a lot of time it's about just surviving with ex the existence, yeah, to move on, yeah. But nonetheless, I think that there can be a shift of a more sustainable approach in the solutions, yeah, uh, that would help a, a healthier foundation for future businesses. As we are all mentioning all the countries that are depending on tourism, yeah. Honolulu is definitely the state of Hawaii is one of them. And we are very impacted here from not having the tourists, yeah. Businesses are really struggling, especially uh, the ones that like food business, hotels, yeah. And uh, I think US or maybe uh, a lot of West European countries might be able to kind of, uh, even with struggling, but still doing better than a lot of other countries that were mentioned, like the Middle East countries, Dubai or uh, all the workers that they bring even from India or so. So just a sustainable economical idea that is existence as we know, yeah, for a long time, but not really implemented, yeah. So I think that that's a um, different mindset to really have the approach of all the ideas from the United Nation, yeah, to be more uh, for, to capture more economically weaker countries, yeah, for the well-being of everybody else, so that we um, that brings sustainability in all other areas as well. That's basically the uh, uh, the most the healthiest approach that we can do. Yeah, and I, I, I completely agree. And, and what you're getting at is uh, we're only, the chain is only as strong as its weakest link, which is absolutely accurate. Now, tourism itself uh, is not bound by any particular region. You don't just have people obviously traveling to certain regions, but you have people from all regions traveling elsewhere. I mean, you look at the World Cup or the Olympics is an example where you know you'll have representatives from 120 plus countries descending on a single city for multiple weeks and and they bring whatever contagion or diseases or whatever they have from their countries there and and it, it could be a real problem so it's not just about protecting the United States or, or Honolulu or, or um, the UK or, or any, just the, the large developed countries. It's about addressing these small developing countries as well. Um, and I'll, I'll hit one more point on, on what you were talking about with regard to sustainability. So you've probably seen the World Economic Forum study on tourism that just came out um, recently where they are expecting COVID to cost 120 million jobs in the tourism industry alone. They're expecting the hit 
to the tourism industry to surpass $1 trillion just as a result of COVID. So the question is, how do you transition? Those are direct numbers, those are not the indirect numbers. I'm sorry? Those are the direct numbers, not the indirect numbers. Right, I'm sorry, yes, those are the absolute direct numbers. The indirect numbers, are, you know, expand that out. At least, at least by seven. Right, expand that out exponentially because, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Gizzo just sort of referenced, it's not just the hotels. Uh, it's the 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 restaurants. Um, it's it's the people that actually grow the food that the restaurants buy. You know, the, the, there's so much farm produce that is having to be destroyed due to spoilage during this time. I mean, it is. It's it's there. Um, tourism may have, and, and pardon the term, but may have some of the most permeable membranes of any industry in the world because you are about an experience and you bring all of the different assets and wonders of countries to bear to give that great experience. When you aren't giving that experience, every single one of those is impacted to one degree or another. So I, I completely agree, Peter. Peter, um, I put uh, Wolfgang Hoffmann on the spotlight here. He's joining us, uh, I know Wolfgang, and he's joining us from Dusseldorf. He's uh, one of my Skull friends. I'm still a member of the Skull Club in Dusseldorf, uh, even though I moved away from Germany in 1984. And uh, uh, you're looking younger, Wolfgang. Welcome. Thank you. And you had a question. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> it's the light. <laughs> Smart. Well, I think uh, uh, well, I'm in these Zoom uh, discussions in Germany uh, as well, and like in yours, uh, Thomas, which is a very good worldwide uh, aspect. But uh, I've been traveling five times uh, during the COVID time, and my experience is the more you are isolated or you isolate yourself or you can organize your trip isolated, the less risk you have. If you fly, if you take a taxi, if you move somewhere in a shop, you run a risk. Whatever you, you are tested, uh, uh, you run a risk. And um, uh, I was uh, very uh, interested in hearing about these concepts uh, uh, in Qatar for the Soccer World Championship. Uh, I've experienced similar events in, in Germany uh, I think countries which are pretty strict, organized pretty strict, they can uh, organize uh, such a way of handling an event without meeting with the locals. Because the biggest source everywhere is are the local people in Germany, everywhere in the world, who mix and mingle and, and family affairs and everything as a source for COVID. So basically you have to separate the travelers, any sort of traveler from the local population with everything you organize to reduce the risk. Yeah, it, you know, it, and, and you touch on a very important point, um, which is, you know, before tourism can get back to normal before people can feel comfortable traveling again. Yes, you have to address uh, social distancing on aircraft. 
and mask requirements and in, in sanitization of those aircraft. Um, but you also have to address the uh, quarantining requirements, which um, are very uh, dispersed, right? They're, they vary dramatically depending on where you're traveling from and where you're traveling to. Nobody wants to travel uh, for a two-week trip where, you know, 10 days of their two weeks is going to have to be spent in quarantine in the country. And then when they come back, they're going to have to quarantine for another 10 days at home. It's and that's assuming stability. That's huh? assuming quarantine stability. But one of right. the big fears is if you're going for two weeks and the rules of quarantine change, you're even in worse situation. Right, which has absolutely happened to people in real time. Uh, where when Spain, for instance, went back into lockdown, all of a sudden the airport just got jammed with people all wanting to escape Spain because the quarantine rules had changed and they wanted to get home and not be stuck under those while they were for the first time on vacation in six months uh, down in the Costa del Sol or wherever. So it, it is, it's, we're still, and, and I, I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but we're still sort of, of responding to the unknown, even six months into this, because the unknown keeps presenting itself. And as a result, you're going to have these dramatic decisions. And so people will just say, you know what, I'm just gonna stay home. I'm just gonna stay put. Uh, until everything gets sorted out. Well, when is that? And is it so long that we never get back certain industries, certain companies, certain jobs? I mean, it's a real trade-off and it's very hard. And I think really technology has a role to play in all of that. It's not the driver, but it's certainly going to be there to supplement the solutions. Now, I wanted to point out uh, another um, positive byproduct of um, talking about the World Cup. The World Cup security has really two parts to it. One is the security of the stadium and, of course, the um, attendees and the uh, players. But the second part is because the World Cup is different from the Olympics and that their national teams, often when a national team loses, in some nations, their um, fans become really upset or if they don't like the uh, solution that a referee has made and they go out and they've caused problems within the local community, the breaking windows, the, the rioting, et cetera, et cetera. I think by this particular virtual, we're bringing this to a, a halt right now with, with the um, one in Qatar, we'll be able to get us handle not only on security in the stadium and for the teams, but also for the local community. And mm -hmm. that may be a really positive, positive byproduct that we hadn't considered, but needs to be thought through. So when we're looking at security, of course, we're looking at biosecurity, health security, we're looking at physical security, we're looking at personal security, cybersecurity, and each one of those are going to interact in ways that have never been thought of before. And it's really an exciting world but a very challenging world. Jürgen, we have somebody else who'd like to make yes, a comment? Um, I, I have a, um, 
there are several. Actually, we have uh, Goran Gilogorovich. I probably pronounced this last name wrong. But Goran, if you wanted to unmute yourself, for some reason, maybe you're calling by phone because I don't see an unmute button. Can you respond? Maybe it doesn't work. If, if not, I will read your question. Um, I think he doesn't have a microphone. Anyway, so Goran um, is writing, testing is a key uh, to safe travel. Isolation is okay, but it hurts travel needs. I've been traveling quite a lot in the past six months, no issues. However, I have need tested uh, at least 15 times in the last past month. If you arrive at a meeting or hotel where all the participants have been PCR tested, cleared in the past 48 hours, then the risk is acceptable and minimal. Uh, to proceed with the meeting. Is that something you could endorse, Kai? And Goran, by the way, is on the phone. He just wrote and said he's on the phone. Oh, yeah, okay. The, the, um, a, a key, you know, when we talked about trust, there are multiple elements to that. Um, so trust is, not to get philosophical here, but, but trust is built off of shared vulnerability. When you are vulnerable and I am vulnerable and we don't take advantage of one another, but instead do what we say we're going to do each time we do that, a little bit more trust gets built. Um, I've never, I don't think we've ever been in a more vulnerable position collectively as a society as we are now. So anything that we can do to, um, uh, to prove our trustworthiness is going to help us move forward. And I would say that absolutely testing is one of the linchpins to that. We have to remember, depending on the test, it's either 40 to 70% um, accurate in terms of its outcome. So there is no guarantee there. We can trust self-reporting of I, 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 I have been tested, I'm fine. I have not put myself in a compromised position for 72 hours or 10 days, whatever, before this meeting. You know, it's gonna vary rapidly. And that's where, as I said, I think technology plays an important part in all of this uh, around uh, monitoring and getting conclusive proof that people are not sick coming in. Um, and that uh, we can create safe work environments. I don't think it's ever going to replace some degree of social distancing. I think in time, we probably won't all be wearing masks all the time in every single venue that we're in, but it's going to be a while before we're not. So, and that's another way of, of building trust is to wear a mask, building trust to remain social distancing, building trust, not trying to shake hands. I mean, it's, it's all of these little things that have come to pass over the last six months that we never would have imagined being issues before this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we had Tarita um, trying to, was trying to get my attention several times, but from what I can see, uh, Tarita may have left. If you're still there, would you please raise your hand or just unmute your microphone? I think Tarita is gone. Okay, so let's let's open. There is uh, Rakesh uh, Marod uh, with another question. Go ahead, Rakesh. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a lovely platform, 
and I'm really enjoying listening to all the stalwarts here. Uh, Guy, I am from India and mm-hmm. recently uh, I attended Synergy from Globant, which is a technology company, where they were talking about augmented AI being implemented in various businesses. I wanted to know if you know what that is and how Cisco is involved with augmented AI and how much of that is going to impact tourism. Uh, were you saying Quantella? Globant. Oh, okay. Globant techno- Technologies. Uh, thank you. Um, so yes. uh, it, I'm not aware of Cisco's direct involvement with, with that company. What I can reference is that uh, under this country digital acceleration program, India is one of our most successful and most active countries. So um, it was uh, some time ago when India announced that they wanted to do 100 smart cities. Um, And uh, we had to figure out what a smart city was in India, because it's going to be very different than New York or Kansas City or Beijing or any other place in the world. So we created um, uh, just outside of Hyderabad on a very busy stretch of one mile road, we created the Golden Mile where we took all of the smart city things that people said were just great that make smart cities and we put them there and we studied them for six months. And at the end of that study, we found that about 40% of the things that we had installed were actually important for a city uh, in India. The other 60% were absolutely useless. And so we took that optimized number and we started replicating it in the 100 cities uh, around uh, India. That is now turning into 400 cities that are going to have connected parking, connected signage, um, uh, smart sanitation, uh, um, smart intersections, uh, traffic control in in as much as you can control any traffic in India. but it, it, we, we're, we're going to be doing that and continue to do that, but we're also connecting the villages. Uh, and um, an example is, is a little village called Palgar, about two and a half hours outside of Mumbai. Uh, we were able to put up a tower uh, and connect that village to the rest of the world to Wi-Fi for the first time. Um, and you know, it's changing lives. Uh, the, the school kids, uh, they got online like they had been online their whole lives. It's to Peter's point, you ask a nine-year-old and uh, they'll figure it out. Um, the women of the village who are artists uh, actually created their own website to be able to sell their art globally instead of at the end of their village street to whoever happened to stop by. Um, it's, uh, I, I think that in short, India as a country uh, is one of the most aggressive in terms of digitization that we've seen anywhere in the world. The level of commitment, the number of investments, but of course you also have a size factor that makes anything that we do uh, piecemeal a drop in the bucket. So everything has to be exponentially huge and scalable and replicable very rapidly, which we're doing. Thank you very much. We have uh, Yamal, uh, Yamal Panwar, I probably pronounce your last name also wrong, um, have an observation. I think he's joining us from Pakistan. Uh, Yamal, let me um, unmute you. 
Oh, you have to unmute yourself, I think. Uh, that doesn't sound key. Oh, there he is. Okay. There you go. Go ahead, Fiamal. He's writing, so he must be there. Can you hear us, Yamal? Well, um, let me just read what he wrote here. Maybe his microphone is not cooperating. It's just an observation from what I can see. He said, I had a group, he must be a tour operator or travel agent in Pakistan. He had a group of uh, from Spain last week. They traveled 14 days in Pakistan with no general precautions, except my company's precautions of cleaning the seats of a van with disinfection daily, wearing masks for guide and drivers, and no handshakes and so forth. Otherwise, they were in bazaars and museums. It was a normal trip. On the last day, uh, per our own policy, we did PCR of everyone, and everyone was negative, and they went home safe. So that, I guess, is a positive observation. But isn't that also a little bit risky? Um, of course. Uh, there, there's risk in, in just about everything that we're doing right now. But at the same time, um, you know, you, you see reports of the risks associated with being locked down, um, the loss of jobs, the loss of economy, um, people not going in and getting their treatments for uh, cancer uh, or their diagnostics or therapeutics, um, their testing, uh, their preventive uh, uh, medicine visits, um, you know, depression, all of these other things that uh, I think we're probably unfortunately going to be learning about uh, over the coming months that, that they also too uh, have ravaged populations. Now that's very depressing, but it's a fact. And uh, and so uh, to to that point, you're always going to have to weigh <clears throat> the relative risks uh, with the relative benefits. But you've got to take a comprehensive look at risks because it's not just the risks associated with catching COVID. There are all sorts of other risks that that are um, that occupy space around it. That's a really important point. And uh, one of the things, even within diseases or within um, social diseases also, such as depression, what are the probabilities that a depression will do more damage than COVID or whatever it happens to be? So right now, we're putting tremendous amount of emphasis on COVID, but we're not giving people the cancer treatment that they need. They, can't, they may survive COVID, but die from cancer. So it's not only a balancing of one risk to another, but it's the probabilities within each uh, disease or each social action that has to be looked at. And both of those are really essential. And since we're going uh, circling around in that part of the world, uh, let's also hear an observation from um, H.M. Hakim uh, from Bangladesh. H.M., uh, if you wanted to unmute yourself, you can share your observation on... India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Uh, Bangladesh. So, have some... Yes. yes. <laughs> so if you unmute yourself, uh, the microphone is yours. There may be some problems in Bangladesh too. Okay, so maybe H.M. doesn't have a microphone, so let me just read what he shares. 
uh, in his um, observation, it says in Bangladesh, domestic tourism has picked up. Resort hotels occupancy is 70%. And um, th that is quite unusual. So I was hoping I could ask him a little bit more uh, what type of tourism this is, is, if this is domestic tourism, if this is tourism from neighboring countries um, or where else. So hopefully uh, HM, we can get to this and talk a little bit more about the success of your industry in, in Bangladesh at another uh, future session. And we also had a feedback uh, from Las Vegas, from Anka, and let me just see if I can find, uh, Bianca Neda. Uh, if you want to unmute yourself, um, feel free to give us your observation from, I think, Hawaii's favorite travel destination, Las Vegas. Yeah, uh, obviously. Uh, no, I mean, I just uh, had a call this morning where we hosted uh, with Travel Nevada and our own chamber to get government affairs and understand uh, where we're at with the governor allowing groups to now meet, you know, up to 250 people indoor and outdoor. We're seeing our, can you hear me? Yes, we yeah. can hear you. Oh, okay, I was like, oh, you look confused. No, no, uh, we're seeing, um, you know, event spaces opening up more. You know, our weddings, we just did, our topic was, uh, you know, since we're the cap wedding capital of the world, is we're only down 7% in our weddings year on year. Just last month, we had over 6,000 wedding licenses, you know, um, submitted and, and accounted for. So we're slowly seeing Vegas open up. We do follow strict guidelines. We have scanners, um, thermometers, masks, and antiseptics, you know, available at entrances, at casinos, our local restaurants, um, restaurants in the casinos, our attractions. Obviously, group numbers are limited to certain places or certain small confinement areas, but uh, slowly we're seeing some growth on that. And with uh, the 250 um, person gathering, we're having shows already opening up this week. A lot of the venues have changed to a cabaret style. So you won't be side by side mm -hmm. um, anymore, really. Uh, like Spiegel World, Absinthe, which is a oh, fantastic show over there at Caesars. They made it all cabaret style. So small tables of four, max six. Um, I think we could do up to 12 in a group in those type of settings, but nothing like Cirque is going to open up. La Rav is closed down. Uh, we're not going to see any of those big, big theater venues like 1800 seats or the stadium, the T-Mobile Arena opening up anytime soon, but it's just a start. We're working on it and uh, everyone's taking precautions and we haven't seen a spike. So we've been kind of steady. Uh, so that's really, really good for us out here in Las Vegas. Well, that's that's good news and of course spikes are coming two weeks later and i think that's uh, what we're fearing here in hawaii and there's a big discussion here about what islands are opening if the entire state is opening now the big island backed out and las vegas i know you had back and forth what about the jackpots did they go down because of all no and people are hitting jackpots <laughs> we're getting a lot like i said we're getting we do have an influx of domestic travel and we're seeing a lot more you know midwest and east yeah. coast just coming to vegas because we're yeah. we are open well, i'm really happy to hear that um for the last 26 years i've run the international tourism security conference and last year was the first year that we had to cancel it because of covid yeah. we're hoping to bring it back next year and so I'm hoping if you guys can get us up to about 300, 350, 
we're good to go and I'm going to start promoting it. So um, give us two uh, weeks. I'll <laughs> we'll let uh, you know. So uh, please do. And I'll be looking forward to seeing you in Vegas. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what? From a Cisco perspective, every year we hold our annual sales conference in Vegas. 25,000 people descend there, and it is just the best time. You're such fantastic hosts. Yes. And uh, we missed it this year desperately. And, and so we've, uh, we've got oh, our. We missed you this year. We missed everybody this year. I bet. So, <laughs> you know, from I need to from everything year. else. Uh, well, it's we'll be looking forward to it. You know, if Vegas can come back, then then anybody can come back, right? Because it yeah. is what you do for a living, and you probably have some best practices that others can share. Yeah, and absolutely, it's, absolutely. It doesn't. I think to... that Anka would say that we could bet on that. <laughs> you yeah. can bet on that. Yeah, and, and best practices don't have to stay in Vegas to share them, but uh, we have <laughs> we have Rohanta. Um, I put Rohantha in, in the spotlight. Where are you from, Rohantha? Uh, the floor is yours. You had a question. You raised your hand. Thank you, uh, Jagan. I'm uh, Dr. Rohantha Tukurala, former chairman of Sri Lanka Tourism, um, and also the former chairman of Sri Lanka Export Development Board. And I'd like to thank Jagan for all the support he has given Sri Lanka. Thank you very much. Oh, oh thank you. Uh -huh. One of my favorite places, Sri Lanka. What a beautiful place. I was there in the 70s the first time in Ekaduva when I was young and wild. Yeah. <laughs> and Rohan, right. I, I recently published a book on tourism policing. And one of the uh -huh. best tourism policing, this is obviously just before COVID, was in Sri Lanka. So I have a oh, whole yeah. I have a whole chapter about your 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 uh, tourism policing and protocols for Sri Lanka. Thank you, thank you, and uh, I bring you greetings from Sri Lanka. And as you know, we ranked what in Lonely Planet as the number one destination. Um, so um, we have again reevaluated also on that. But uh, we are going through some tough times, especially in the tourism sector, because uh, end of the day we've got um, the industry that contributes about four percent of the GDP, and ninety-six percent happens to be from the other sectors like tea and industry and commerce and things like that. So uh, in terms of priority, of course, you, you tend to obviously keep the economy alive. And hopefully this year, the economy will go at about a 1% GDP growth um, because we are focused on the areas other than tourism. But we also have a very interesting thing because about 500,000 tourists tend, from Sri Lanka tend to go overseas. And since they cannot go overseas, uh, they are uh, visiting the high-end properties and the domestic tourism is kicking out. So they spend about 1.6 billion, which is also about a 2% of the GDP. So our net loss is about 2% GDP. My question is actually um, for this very eminent um, panel is that, is there any best practice around the world uh, where a country has opened out to tourism and that best practice has helped not also uh, create a situation where uh, another new wave has come. And, and that's my simple question, sir. Uh, Peter, would you like, would you like yeah. me to address well, let me that? Make sure, yeah, before, let me make sure that I understood the question correctly, that a country that's opened up to tourism and has not had a new wave of COVID or has had a new wave, which were you asking? I, I lost at the very end. It has not. Uh, it has not uh, affected the uh, control of the COVID virus. That's my question. 
the, the reason why a lot of people effective are not control. Yeah, that's right. So which countries had effective control versus, well, it's kind of an interesting world we're seeing because um, one of the countries that's actually done quite well is Sweden and they've had some of the least number of regulations. I think also we had a, uh, a, a, a comment from Pakistan saying that they also have had minimal regulations and have allowed herd immunity to kind of take over. But the problem with your question is that when we see, we believe we have a piece of fact, and then a week later we discover what we thought was correct is not correct again. So I think Guy pointed out that right now all the data are very unstable. And because yeah. we don't, it, it's, it's, we're not at the end of the path, we're only at the beginning of the path on some level. So, you know, I could say to you, well, two weeks ago, the following countries opened up and they were able to get good control. But then a week later, for example, Spain was really quite proud of what it did and now Madrid is closed again. So a week ago, I would have said one thing and now I have to say something completely different. Yeah. Um, and that is part of the issue is that there's two issues. These are now medical issues that so we don't quite understand. We don't really know the total causes yet of COVID and it's not operating like a normal virus because it's not operating like a normal virus. And one of the things we see is lack of mutation. Usually viruses mutate in a more a predictable trajectory and we're not being able to do that. So therefore, because of the abnormality, and, I do, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything, we, you know, we don't know what really caused it and how it spread so quickly. It's really hard to give hard data. What we think is correct may not be correct you know, a week later. So I think the thing to do is what we do know is that right now, social distancing works, good levels of hygiene work, getting people to wash their hands. The best hygiene is soap and water. And very often, a lot of the stuff that we're using, you could simplify it and, and you know, almost everybody around the world can afford soap and water. So if we can do th those types of issues, not only are we gonna bring down COVID, we're gonna bring down a lot of other problems. And remember, through much of the world now, we're on the verge of the flu season. And COVID is a coronavirus as is the flu. So one of the big challenges, maybe this will be something Cisco will be able to figure out or somebody else, um, how we for a long time now may not know who has COVID and who has the flu because they, and their original stages, they look very similarly. And that means we're gonna get all sorts of messed up data. And so when we say, you know, this country has an 11% infection rate, that may or may not be true. We, and, and the answer is we just don't know. And that makes us very uncomfortable because we live in a world where we want certainty and what we're giving you is lack of certainty. And that is, that's a real problem. And I'll, I'll just quickly add to that because uh, it goes back to what uh, Bianca was saying as well. Um, we're seeing in this country a noticeable uptick in domestic travel. And I don't know that this is true or not, but one would think it makes at least some degree of sense that before you see international travel and international tourism pick up, you will see uh, domestic travel and domestic tourism pick up. 
And again, that's the confidence building measures, the confidence building steps, I think that people are going to be taking as they get back out there in the world. And I've noticed it myself. I mean, I've, I've, um, I forget who had said that they've done a bit of travel over the last six months, but so have I. Um, and uh, I do get tested and we do make sure that we, we cover safety protocols, but I haven't been on a plane that's been more than 30% full. Yeah. Uh, in, in the I, I think the real issue is not going to be the planes, it's going to be the airline terminals. And that's, that's another issue that has to be looked at. The other side of that is, and how, how good is your road system within a country for domestic tourism? So Ooh. if you have a fairly decent road system, people who are afraid of planes may be more than willing to drive. The hotel industry has done a better job around the world of um, COVID preparedness than have the terminals at airlines and baggage handlers and stuff like that. So you're seeing a number of people <coughs> will probably be in Washington DC for Thanksgiving, but this year for the first time, we probably will not fly at our age. We'll probably drive to Washington, which is two days, but we can style where they are sanitizing the hotel. The doors are sealed. You know that once it's been sanitized, nobody else can get in um, so that that's a form of domestic tourism that I might not have considered a year ago. And I think that's what you're saying about in Sri Lanka also. The hotel industry has really gotten control to a greater extent than some of the other industries. So that means good roads, good internal transportation. If I may just I contribute one um, recommendation and a suggestion which I have thought through um, is that I think uh, there are two uh, tourism new opportunities coming out and and one of them is that it's for the people about 65 years old and who want to have a, a safe country to come and stay for about 30 to 35 days uh, so for a long stay and and they are essentially not the people who want to travel but they want to just relax experience you know so they want to say, so they go to a boutique hotel, they take the whole boutique hotel uh, of say eight to eight to 10 rooms. And, and then, uh, you know, they relax for about 30 to 35 days. And I think this might be um, a, a good segment to open out. Like for example, in Sri Lanka, it's a hot country. And, and since winter is just setting out in different parts of the world, maybe that's one opportunity that exist for the tropical countries that is one and the second one is uh, i feel that it's also a good for countries which have a lower um, uh, i mean covid spread uh, to open it open out the global market for for people to come and get themselves quarantined and then go through the treatment and then they they then subsequently you know they spend time uh, in the country and then they go back. So I think in the short term, there might be an opportunity there. Well, that's kind of a new twist on medical tourism. And that is a concept, what is uh, now becoming a new trend. Um, I had recommended even also for uh, Hawaii with our two week mandatory quarantine still in place and maybe even for some of the islands uh, in place longer than the 15th of October we expected, 
I know this has been announced in Barbados in the Caribbean, and it's not only people who want to relax in a way, but also people who wanted to work. So if a hotel has excellent internet facilities, um, they can provide, you can actually, in, in my job, for example, I can work from anywhere as long as I have internet. So there's a whole new opportunity opening up. And, uh, and, and Jürgen, it's, as we've gone well over our time, maybe that's a wonderful place to end because you're talking about the use of exactly what Cisco does, creating the uh, internet that's needed to allow people to go around the world and work someplace or else. So maybe we should give Guy just a few words to kind of sum things up, if, if that makes sense to people. And then you and I will sum things up and we've gone well over our time. Yes, we did. And that's, that tells you why it was very interesting. So thank you, Guy. Guy, <laughs> would you like to say no, no, a few best I'm more just words? as interested in listening as I, as I was in answering questions. So thank you again for the opportunity to, to visit with you today. Um, you know, it, it, Peter just hit on something that's near and dear to our industry's heart, Cisco's in particular, uh, and that is the fundamental belief that moving forward, uh, being connected should be a fundamental human right. It, it should no longer be for the privileged. It should no longer be for those developed countries that uh, are fortunate enough to have 5G and Wi-Fi everywhere. Um, it, it, it should be a fundamental human right for everything, for everyone. And in doing so, uh, we will lift 500 million people out of poverty. We will add $6.7 trillion to global GDP. And we have to remember that only 60% of the world is connected. You can believe that 40% of the world remains unconnected. If you want to see this sort of freedom uh, of travel uh, for those that want to have experiences in, in faraway places, um, connect, allow them to go there and remain connected, allow them to work from uh, unique places that they would never even think about. And I think you're going to see a desire for that moving forward, because we're already seeing a lot of millennials that are using COVID as an opportunity to take their laptops and travel around the country here in the U.S. because nobody's traveling and the, the hotel rooms are very cheap and the airline reservations are very cheap, the airline tickets and all of that, and they can just take their laptop and work from anywhere. You're going to see that, I think, as Jurgen said, this is going to end up being a trend and um, it's going to really benefit the tourism industry. So again, I thank you very much for the opportunity, Peter, uh, Jurgen, uh, to address your group. Thank you. Jurgen, you, you want me to... Uh, yeah, let me, be, before you do this, Peter, yes. let me just uh, remind everyone, uh, do you find an archive? I would, everyone who's registered here would automatically get an email with an archive of this event. Uh, it'll be on rebuilding.travel. If you have any interesting ideas or contribution or you wanted to be on a future show or you know anyone who wanted to be here, simply go to rebuilding.travel and click on contact. I also, I'm seeing Alexandra there in, in the background. Uh, maybe I even give you a chance just to say hi because Alexandra is representing us in the Balkan region in Montenegro. 
And uh, this is something we really like to implement at rebuilding.travel to have local initiatives in various parts of the world um, work more intensive in your part of the world. We, we can really just kind of overlook everything from here. And uh, we, we, need, we need people on the ground in various parts that can actually move our agenda forward. So anyone who is interested, who knows anyone who's interested in working with us in your own region, whether it's a country, whether it's a city or an entire region like the Balkan, please also go to rebuilding.travel and, and simply click on uh, contact and uh, you can do this. Maybe um, Alexander, before we give it back to Peter for final thought, I know you had some really, really interesting development. You had election, maybe just two minutes. If you can just yeah. uh, say hello and give us a real quick rundown. And that is, of course, different from our entire uh, session. Hello, Alexander. Hello, hello, everybody. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, yes. we can hear you. Okay, okay. So unfortunately, nothing good to, I have nothing good to say or to report from this region <laughs> or from, from Montenegro, unfortunately, that's how it is. Situation is quite, quite alarming. Uh, numbers of, uh, uh, of uh, cases are growing, COVID cases are growing. It, uh, we only, we are doing testing, but not that much. We only test people who have symptoms and there are like 30% of uh, of them um, who are infected and you can count that the, the, the real number is multiplied by, by three, I believe. So uh, this is the period when uh, uh, Montenegro is supposed to be packed with tourists, but now we are kind of ghost country. We have no tourists at all, even though the country is open, but you know, as the, as the infection rate is this high, you know, nobody's of course coming here. So the elections have been finished a month ago, but we still don't have a new government, which supposed to uh, actually the opposition won, uh, won the election. So the, the ruling party, uh, which is in power for three decades needs to be changed, replaced with a new one, but we don't still have government. We, sti we still, we don't have government in power yet. And it looks like everybody's waiting for the new government to solve all the issues like political issues, corona issues, tourism, everything. So we are on standby and I really enjoyed the session, but I think we are kind of far from the, from the stage when uh, we can implement the solutions that you guys uh, advise about tonight. But it was very useful to, to listen and hopefully we will join the, the yeah. discussion fully soon. Thank you, Alexandra, and, and, and thanks are definitely uh, tough in some parts of the world and yeah. Yeah, better in other parts and, uh, and hopefully a discussion like we do on a global scale we can all learn from each other and thank you so much what you have been doing for rebuilding.travel you really got yeah. us on the map you got us a lot of local media and people are talking about you and are talking about us so that's all good so the final word is with peter thank you very much so uh, again first of all alexandra hold on it will get better so we just yeah, of course just hold on I want to first, um, of course, thank my partner, uh, Jürgen, but um, especially our guest today, Guy Dietrich. It was a really fabulous session. And I think if I wanted to summarize in just a few very short sentences, the word travel is derived from the French word travail, which means work, which is derived from the Latin word for having a um, tupolos, which is having a pitchfork in your rear end. 
In other words, it was considered from most of the history to travel was hard work and a miserable experience. And in the end of the 20th century, beginning up until COVID, travel, we switched it. Where travel will be in another five years, three years, two years, we don't know. But because of the work of people such as Cisco, people who are trying to create new innovative ideas, I don't think we will go back. We will be working hard to make travel easy. And what I would love to see is that we create, a, as our friend from um, Sri Lanka said, to create a world we might call pamper tourism. When you go and people care about what you do, people care about who you are. You're not just a number, but you're a person. And if we can create that sense of caring and understanding, then the French word travail will, will go away. And instead, we will come up with the idea of caring, love, and a new experience that will help the world's greatest peacetime industry get back on its feet again. So I want to thank everybody for a really fascinating session. I hope you all learned something. Please stay in touch with us. Let us know if you'd like to be on the program. And um, we look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Aloha. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This session is supported by Rebuilding.Travel. Rebuilding.Travel is an initiative started by this publication and by me, together with Dr. Peter Talo, a safety security expert in Texas, and Dr. Taleb Rifai, the former Secretary General for the UNWTO. Rebuilding.Travel is a global discussion with tourism leaders in 120 countries right now it includes ministers of tourism, but it also includes tour guides and anyone else who is involved in our global business. We're all discussing a way out, a way forward, and Rebuilding.Travel is also behind the Safer Tourism Seal. The Safer Tourism Seal is a recognition and based mostly on self-assessment on businesses and meant for businesses that are reopening the industry and keeping their staff and the, their guests safe. Safer Tourism Seal also has the International Hall of Tourism Heroes. These are people recognized for their work in fighting this virus, parts of our industry, and you can nominate anyone. There's no charge for any of this. And uh, get involved in safertourismseal.com and rebuilding.travel. Enjoy this event. Thank you for listening to another edition from Livestream.travel. We will be back with more updates from eTurbo News soon. If you have any questions or you like to be featured in one of our upcoming editions, simply go to livestream.travel and click on contact. For more information on the Travel News Group, publisher of eTurbo News, Hawaii News Online, Travel Wire News, and many others, go to travelnewsgroup.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon.